I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Mark, chapter 16, we'll be taking a break from our study in 1 Corinthians and considering the resurrection account as it's found here in the Gospel of Mark. And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word, Mark, chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out. And fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, the Easter story is one that I'm sure is familiar to all of us. If you were raised in the church, you would know that this was a staple in Sunday school classes. I'm sure you've heard uh, uh, scores of sermons on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even if you're the type of person who only goes to church once a year, I'm sure you are familiar with this story because this is the story you hear every Easter, the one day you come a year. And yet, as I was reading the story for you today, as it is found in the Gospel of Mark, perhaps one question arise. Why did you stop reading in verse 8? Why did you end with this phrase that they went out from the to- and fled from the tomb For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What kind of ending is that? Well, the reason why I stopped reading in verse 8 is because, I'm sure as many of you know, the earliest and best manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark that we have all end in verse 8. As a matter of fact, verses 9 through 20, as they are found in your Bibles, uh, are are found in later manuscripts, and early church commentators and scribes either have no knowledge of verses 9 through 20, or made notes uh, indicating that it was lacking in the older manuscripts that they had, indicating that it was likely added at a later time. And that's why, at least in my Bible, verses 9 through 20 are enclosed in double square brackets. And once you look even at the, at the text itself, you'll notice that verse 9 doesn't really flow from verse 8. <clears throat> the subject of verse 9, he, presumably 
uh, Jesus, does not correspond with the women who were last mentioned in verse 8. In addition to that, the writing style and vocabulary of the long ending of Mark does not flow with the rest of the chapter or even with the book as a whole. The material that if you go in your own time and read the, the long ending of Mark, the material you'll find is clearly a summary that had been compiled from the other three gospel accounts that we have, as well as the book of Acts. So even if you do away with the long ending of Mark, you really don't need it because it's found in all in the other three gospels, as well as the book of Acts. All of it, of course, except for the silly nonsense about drinking poison and, uh, and surviving. <clears throat> you see that in verse 18. But you might ask the question, <clears throat> why is it that these verses might have been added to the gospel of Mark? Well, clearly because of the abrupt ending, the, the somewhat uh, unsettling ending that we see in verse 8. Clearly, you could see the motivation of somebody, uh, uh, some scribe later on, uh, writing and on the side column or writing somewhere else on the paper, uh, a summary of, of filling out the rest of the Easter story as we know it. And since paper was so common, or sorry, since paper was so rare in the ancient world and so valuable, they would use every square inch of the paper. And so perhaps unintentionally, over time, as that copy was copied and that copy was copied, eventually these verses found their way into later manuscripts. But the overwhelming majority of scholars, both conservative and liberal, are agreed that verses 9 through 20 are not original to Mark's gospel, but were written probably in the first half of the second century and eventually made their way into later manuscripts. So it's old, it's ancient, it's worth considering, but, it, but in all likelihood, it's not part of Mark's original gospel. And so that leaves us with the question, did Mark intend to end his gospel with verse 8? Was that his intention? Or, as some scholars suggest, perhaps he intended to have a longer ending. Some say that he wanted to write a longer ending to fill out the rest of the story as we know it, but he was prevented. Perhaps he was arrested. Perhaps he got sick. Perhaps he died. But you see, we don't know, we don't hear about any of that in the ancient church histories, and we are told quite a bit about Mark, John Mark, and the way in which he wrote the gospel, uh, using Peter as his primary source. None of us are told in the ancient church histories that Mark was somehow prevented from finishing his gospel. Others suggest that he did write a longer ending, but it was lost. Kind of the, the old, my dog ate my homework story. And that as he wrote it on the scroll, the end of the scroll, which would have been rolled up in the middle of the, of the scroll as it was rolled, that somehow that ending fell off and it was lost. But if that's the case, that would have had to have happened very, very early in the transmission of the gospel. You see, the, common, uh, the, the practice in the ancient church when when uh, the, the authors of Scripture would write their letters or write their Gospels, they would send it to a, to a church, and the church would make their own copy. They would keep their copy and send on the original. And that way, these letters or books would be circulated, and they would be able to reproduce them over and over again. You see, since all of the earliest ones we have lack this long ending, and all end in verse 8, then if it was lost, 
it would have had to have happened very early in the transmission of the gospel. So that leaves us with the only other option, that perhaps Mark intended to finish his gospel in this way. Perhaps he intended to end the story with verse 8. And so putting those questions aside, let's look at the text as we have it before us today, verses 1 through 8, as it has been authored and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Of course, the context, you'll recall, Jesus, after Jesus had been crucified on Friday, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy member of the Jewish council and also a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, requested Pilate for the body of Jesus and laid it in his own tomb, which had been hewn from a rock face. Typically, victims of crucifixion were either thrown in a mass grave or thrown into a pile and burned, but it is noteworthy that Jesus was buried in a new tomb where no one else had ever been buried. That's what John tells us in his gospel. And although Jesus' male disciples had all fled and gone into hiding, the women we read of at the beginning of our passage today, including Mary Magdalene, as well as the other Mary, they stuck around. They remained there when they crucified their Lord. And they saw where Jesus was buried, noting the place And since all of this occurred at sundown on Friday, which is the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath, these women would have to wait for the the ending of the Sabbath, which would be sundown on Saturday, but they would have to wait until sunrise Sunday morning, the first day of the week, in order to bring the spices that they had bought with their own money, the spices that they had brought in order to anoint the body of their Lord out of a sign of respect uh, for Jesus. The first woman we're introduced to, of course, is Mary Magdalene. This is the one uh, from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons, as Luke tells us in Luke chapter 8. And she had been a longtime follower of Jesus, going all the way back to his time in Galilee. And she and the other women had accompanied Jesus and his disciples on their long journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they had served them on the way. Mark tells us, tells us that in chapter 15, verse 41. And so it's so interesting to see that in a male-dominated patriarchal society, it's fascinating to see such a prominent role that the female disciples of Jesus play at the end of his life, as well as the role they play in the resurrection account, all four Gospels start with the women coming to the tomb. And so you have to admire the women's devotion, their bravery, where all the men fled and hid. They were willing to go to the tomb out of respect for their Lord. Their, Their devotion, their bravery cannot be questioned. But clearly, they hadn't thought through their plan all the way. Because first thing in the morning, they get up, they take the spices, the fragrances, they're making their way, but then it dawns on them, who's gonna roll the stone? You see, the stone that would be blocking the the entrance to the tomb where Christ had been laid, which had been sealed at at Pilate's order, must have weighed tons. And there's no way these women could have moved this stone. And so they're wondering, how are we even going to get in? Well, that question that they're wondering on the way 
immediately, their perceived problem immediately goes away as they make their way and they see that this very large stone had been moved. So they're wondering, what on earth? Who moved the stone? So they come up and they enter into the tomb. Now, in all likelihood, this would have been a very small entrance into the tomb. As as this tomb would have been hewn out of a rock, the, the initial opening would have been very small. You would have had to stoop down, perhaps even get on your hands and knees to enter into this cave, which eventually would give way to a larger room where they would be able to place the corpse and use this tomb over and over for all the family members who die. And so I want you to just put yourself in these women's situation. I don't know how many of you like to do spelunctering, crawling around in caves. I don't know about you, but I get claustrophobic, and I get kind of freaked out going into a dark place. Now, picture, you're going into a dark place, and this is a a tomb, right? You're going in there to see a corpse, which is very unsettling. And so these women are, are making their way in. It's dark, and they can't see, and they go in, and they make their way into the tomb expecting to see the corpse of Jesus laying there. And instead, they see a young man clothed in white robes sitting on the right side. How about you? But I would be terrified to see that. And that's exactly what happened to the women as we read that they were alarmed. I think that's an understatement. They were terrified to see this. They weren't expecting to see this young man sitting there. That's not what you would expect to see. We're told that he's wearing a white robe. Luke tells us that this robe was dazzling bright. And so even in the darkness of the tomb, this this robe shone because he, of course, was no ordinary young man. This, in fact, was an angel. And this angel was the one who had rolled the stone away, making his way into the tomb to encounter the women. And so they were terrified. They weren't expecting to see this, which is exactly why the first thing that the angel needs to say in verse 6 is, do not be alarmed. It's interesting, the most often command that you, ha- that you hear an angel say is, fear not. That's the most repeated command in all of Scripture. Why? Because every single time an angel appears to somebody, they're terrified. I'd be terrified too. If some person in a dazzling robe appears before you, the first thing they need to say is, do not be alarmed. Fear not. Don't be afraid. I mean you no harm. You see, knowing their intentions, he assures them they have nothing to fear. He says, you have come here seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Notice how he identifies him. He spells it out just to make sure that they got the right guy. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. You see, the very last time that they had laid eyes on their Lord, he had been nailed to a cross. The very one whom they had witnessed nailed to the cross some 36 hours before is the one that they are searching for. And yet the good news is that he has been raised. He is not here. The same Jesus who was crucified has risen. He is risen. Three words in English, one word in Greek. And this one word is what makes this whole book good news. You see, Mark starts off his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word gospel means good news. And it's this one word 
That makes it good news. If this word was not in here, he is risen, then no matter how much Jesus had done, no matter all the good teachings that he did, no matter how, much he, how, how many demons he cast out, how many sick people he healed, regardless of the fact that he could walk on water, if he is not risen, we are all lost. And this is no good news. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. You see, this is good news. This is a good ending for Mark's gospel because it includes this word, he is risen. And if he is risen, then it's good news for all who have faith in him. And so they're looking for Jesus, the angel reminds them, but they're looking in the wrong place. He says, he's not here. I love in in Luke's account, the angel asks them, why do you seek the living among the dead? You've gone to the wrong place. He's not here because he's not dead. He is alive. And clearly, we have here an account of a physical resurrection. Some people want to suggest that perhaps Jesus uh, uh, spiritually was resurrected, that his spirit lives on in all of our hearts, and yet his body remained dead. But that's clearly not what we read here, and clearly not what we read in the other gospel accounts. We have a clear physical resurrection as he says, see the place where he was laid? Were you some 36 hours before watched him as they brought him in the tomb? He is no longer here. The corpse that was laid to rest and sealed up in the tomb is now gone. And so the angel gives them this good news of the gospel. He is not here. He is risen. But then he moves from informing them to enlisting them as fellow messengers of this good news. You see, these women now are enlisted to go tell Jesus' disciples the good news. It's fascinating that our Lord could have just sent this angel to appear to the disciples. An angel would have done a much better job at it. And yet, in God's infinite wisdom, he enlists these women as the very first heralds of the good news of the gospel, the very first human messengers to proclaim the fact that Christ has been raised. And all four gospels agree and and highlight this, this prominent role that women serve as the first witnesses to the resurrection. And this would be shocking in the ancient world, because in in a male-dominated patriarchal society, women were not taken all that seriously. As a matter of fact, a woman's uh, testimony was not even admissible in court. And we see that exact mentality when the women finally do tell the disciples that Christ is risen, as we read in Luke 24, 11, we read that after they tell them the good news, the the reaction of the male disciples is this. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. That's the typical response you'd get from a male in the ancient world. Silly women making up stories. Idle tales. They did not believe them. 
got to appreciate God's sense of humor as he takes what are considered the least and puts them first in the kingdom of God as these women are the very first heralds of the good news. You see, this command is to tell. Uh, this command to tell also should be striking uh, for those of us who are familiar with Mark's gospel. Because the overwhelming majority of times in the gospel of Mark, whenever Jesus did anything, whether casting out demons or healing somebody, he would always strictly charge them to tell nobody. That's what's known as the messianic secret in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is constantly telling people, don't tell anyone what I just did for you. And that's ultimately because Jesus wanted to reveal his own, his own identity on his own terms and in his own timing. And if people went blurting out all the things that he did, it would ruin his plan. And yet here for the first time in Mark's gospel, we see something different. No longer are we hearing uh, the, the command to not tell anybody, but now we have the clear command that they are to tell to spread the news far and wide, to go tell the disciples and Peter the fact that Christ had been raised. You may question, why is it that Peter is singled out among the disciples? Perhaps your first instinct is to think, well, Peter's the chief among the disciples. Of course he's singled out because he's the most important one. I don't think that's why Peter is singled out from among the disciples. I don't think that's why the angel had to tell the women specifically, you need to tell Peter too. Because remember Peter's status at this point. Remember the last thing he did in the Gospel of Mark. He denied his Lord three times, invoking upon himself curses from God if he were not telling the truth. He denied his Lord, his status, as a disciple of Jesus, is called into question. In his, in his mind, he's thinking, I'm no longer a disciple. I'm no longer worthy. And yet the angel specifically gives assurance to the women to tell Peter that all is forgiven and that he will be restored. Peter, of course, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, felt pretty confident about himself. He said, Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll, I'll, I'll go to uh, die with you. And he fell flat on his face. And yet Jesus told Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to have you in order that he may sift you as wheat. And you would hope that, you know, if you were in Peter's shoes, you would hope the next thing out of Jesus' mouth would be, but I told him he couldn't have you. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, Peter, Satan asked to have you so that he may sift you by wheat, but I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. And when you are restored, comfort your brothers. That's what we see going on here. You see, if Peter were left to his own devices and desires, if Peter were left to his own power, he would have been no different than Judas. And yet, because of the preserving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he prayed that Peter's faith would not fail, it did not fail. And he is given this special assurance that Christ has been raised, and he wants Peter to know specifically. And yet, Peter and the rest of the disciples should have known better. And the angel reminds the women of that fact when he says, he's, 
he's going to Galilee just as he told you. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ, not once, not twice, but three times, clearly predicted exactly what would happen to him as they were making their way down to Jerusalem. Case in point would be Mark chapter 10. Jesus tells his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That sounds pretty clear. Jesus repeated that time and time again in the disciples' ears as they were making their way to Jerusalem, and it went in one ear and right out the other. Didn't even register in their minds about what was going to happen, because when it did happen, they were clueless and lost, and were not even thinking, were not even anticipating Christ's resurrection. In Mark chapter 14, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, After I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So he gave them a specific promise. Look, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And the angel has to remind them, it's just as he told you. Remember? Remember what he said? And yet after receiving this amazing news, and and for those of you who were raised in the church, who went to Sunday school, you know, we picture the women running off to tell the disciples, and everyone's so excited to hear the good news that Jesus has been raised. And yet when we read verse 8, we do not see joy and excitement. But what we see in their initial response is absolute terror. Absolute terror. These women ran out of that tomb as fast as they could, and they were terrified. And, and And we wonder, why? Why did they respond this way? Well, you need to picture and imagine all of the trauma that they had gone through. Think about how their week began on such a high note. As as the Lord made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and everyone was assured, this is it. This is the inauguration of the kingdom of God and the king has arrived. And how their their, their hopes were dashed against the stone as he was arrested. And before these women's very eyes, he was tortured and executed in the most cruel and heinous manner. And he was buried, and they were, they were going to the tomb, expecting to see him there, and then he's not. I think, I think what Mark is describing here is a very open and honest and plausible description of what we describe today as psychological trauma. Look at the symptoms. We have uncontrollable shaking, fear, denial, irrational behavior. These are the types of things that we naturally, this is our natural response to traumatic events. And even though the, good, the news that they received was good news, it was too much for them to handle, at least at first. Matthew tells us that when they ran away, they ran away with fear, but that fear was mixed with great joy, which seems kind of ironic. But that's not Mark's focus here. You see, Mark wants to focus on their initial response. He wants to focus on the initial fact that they were seized with trembling and astonishment and paralyzed with fear. You see, this shouldn't 
come out of left field. If you've been reading Mark's gospel, this is the typical response that people have throughout the book to the supernatural power of Jesus Christ. Whether it's calming the storm or walking on the water or healing or casting out demons, time and time again, we read that the initial response of people is utter fear, terror, because they're encountering the holy, awesome, supernatural power of Jesus Christ. They're encountering the powers of the age to come, and that's our initial response. And that's the initial response of the women, as they flee. And we're told that they said nothing to anyone. The point here is that they did not obey the angel's command, at least not at first. Again, this is ironic because every single time that Jesus had warned somebody in his gospel, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anyone what I just did for you, time and time again, those people would always go tell and blurt it out and make life more difficult for our Lord. So difficult that he couldn't even enter into the city, but he had to live out in in the fields for a time because the crowds were coming after him. And yet here for the first time that the women are told, go, tell tell the good news, they are paralyzed with fear. Of course, this is only temporary. Of course, in time, their fears subside and give way to faith. In time, they eventually do go tell the disciples, as we clearly read of in the other gospel accounts, and as is implied in Mark's gospel. After all, how could he be even writing this gospel if they didn't eventually tell people? But it's interesting to note that when when the disciples receive the good news of the resurrection, we do not see gullible, naive, pre-scientific, non-skeptic people. But we see the exact opposite. We see true and real human emotions We see disbelief, doubting. We have doubting Thomases. We have weeping Marys. We have perplexed Peters. And the the reception of the good news, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, comes in fits of of starts and stops. It's an emotional roller coaster where they have great fear mixed with great joy. And it takes a while to set in. And so... As we conclude our passage today, as we reflect upon the ending of Mark's gospel, at least as we have it before us here, I want to suggest to you that perhaps Mark did intend to finish his gospel with verse 8. And I want you to reflect upon the impact that that has upon the listener. At the risk of me sounding a little loosey-goosey, I want to ask you, how does this make you feel? As we read of the women, paralyzed with fear and not telling anyone, what sort of response do you want to give? Do you want to be like these women, paralyzed with fear, or even worse, lulled to complacency? Or are you like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who also had their doubts? But when the Lord began to open up the scriptures to them and declare the good news that he had been raised, their hearts burned within them and they could not stop. They could not rest, but made their way back to Jerusalem to tell the good news to the disciples, just as these women eventually did as well.
course, that's the response that we all should have. To tell other people the good news that Christ is risen indeed and to live lives that are consistent with the fact that we have been raised with him. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you, were, you in the fullness of time were born of woman, born under the law, and suffered the curse of the law for us and for our salvation. But we thank you that that is not the end of the story, for indeed you have been raised, and you give us that newness of life even now through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray, O Lord, that you would grant to us faith to overcome our fears and doubts, that you would give us faith and hearts filled with gratitude to freely share this good news, that you have overcome death and that life is available through your name. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.